if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've gathered together to surrender our lives, to say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not a radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. Welcome back to another episode of the Radical Together Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, you can listen to all the previous episodes at Radical.net or by subscribing on iTunes. Now, over the next two episodes, David's message is from John chapter 3, and it's entitled, Love That Captivates. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, if you don't have one, let me encourage you to find somebody around you who does so you can look on with them. But I want to invite you to open with me to John 3. Over in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we're going to look at chapter 3, specifically verse 16. When I was thinking and praying through what we might study in this Christmas season in the Word, my mind, my thoughts immediately went to a table full of Muslim faces in the Middle East a couple of months ago that I shared with you about soon after I got back sitting around with those Muslim men in the middle of Ramadan and them asking me what I believe about God and beginning to share with them about who God is and how Jesus has revealed God's love to us and began to share with them the truth that uh, Islam, no question, doesn't believe Jesus was a good man. Many people would believe this, not just Muslims, but Jesus was a good man but he was certainly not God in the flesh. To say that God would become like us would be blasphemy. And so I began to share with them, as I told you, that when I met my wife, Heather, I did not send other people to tell her that I liked her and other people to tell her that I loved her and not send anyone else to propose to her. I did not send anybody else to give her news of my love. In matters of love, one must go himself. And the radical truth of Scripture, the radical truth of Christianity is that God did not send this prophet or that prophet, as someone at my doorstep tried to tell me yesterday. He did not send this messenger or that messenger. He came himself to show great love to you and to me. And that is an astounding truth. And so what I want us to do over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas Eve service here, I want us to unpack phrase by phrase John 3.16. And I want us to pray that God will do exactly what I just said a minute ago, awaken us to the reality of these words. And we're going to start this morning in verse 1, make sure we have the context, and then we're going to camp out on the first part of John 3.16. So start with me in John chapter 3, verse 1. We've got to know that these words in John 3.16 came in a conversation Jesus was having with a religious teacher named Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter in a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And let me just pause there for a second. I mean, realize who Nicodemus is. He is, it's like Jesus is talking to a pastor right here. Even the most religious of people in the first century needed to hear the truth of John 3.16. So no one is excluded from this, not even myself. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But you people, still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then here it is. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now as an introduction to this verse this morning, as we begin to get our minds and our hearts around this, this one verse of Scripture. What I want us to do is I want us to realize two factors that affect how we understand this verse. And the first factor is who's involved, and the second factor is the story that's led up to this. And so I want to divide that up into the setup and the story. We'll start with the setup. Who's involved in John 3.16, and specifically this phrase at the very beginning, for God so loved the world. There are two subjects involved here. Number one is an infinitely holy God. An infinitely holy God is being talked about in John 3.16. And Nicodemus knew this. This is a guy who was zealous about the holiness of God. He knew that God was holy and he had all kinds of rules that he would follow in his life. He followed all the Old Testament rules and he'd make up others along with those like him to follow to make sure that they were squaring with the holiness of God. Nicodemus knew that in God there was no sin. And as a result, he needed to be very strict in his own life. We have a, sometimes a negative reputation, negative stereotype of guys like Nicodemus. We've got to realize that they were very well respected in the first century because these were guys who were zealous about following God. They wanted to follow God. And they had all these rules to make sure they would do that. However, what Nicodemus had failed to realize was the second person that was involved in this picture, an infinitely holy God, and second, a sinfully rebellious people. And somewhere along the way, Nicodemus had begun to believe that because of all the things he had done, he was okay with God, and he was missing the point that he was not okay with God, that no one is okay with God. When it says, for God so loved the world, this is not a phrase that's talking about how lovely the world is. In fact, when you look throughout the book of John, as well as a few letters he writes later in the New Testament, whenever he uses the word world, and he uses it over and over again, this is the dominant theme for John, it is usually in a negative connotation. You get to John chapter 3, verse 19, he starts talking about how the world loves darkness. You get to chapter 7 in John, verse 17, it talks about how the world hates Jesus. Chapter 15, it says the world hates followers of Jesus. 
chapter 14, it talks about how the world will, John talks about how the world will hate the Spirit of God. Chapter 16, he talks about how the world will rejoice when the people of God are weeping. The world will be the source of trouble. John chapter 17, Jesus says the world has rejected him completely. And then you get to John's first letter in 1 John 2 and in 1 John 3, he talks about how the world is the source of all the sinful cravings of man and basically comes to the conclusion at the end of 1 John that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So the world is not a pretty picture for John, which is what we need to realize when we come to John 3.16. It says, for God so loved the world. It's not talking about the loveliness of the world. This verse is talking about the depth of God's love for an unlovely world. For a sinfully rebellious people, which would include all of us in this room. Now here's what we've got to do. When we hear Jesus saying these words to Nicodemus, we've got to put ourselves in his shoes and imagine hearing this. Nicodemus was a pretty sharp Jewish guy, and he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And he was accustomed to hearing about how God loved the people of Israel, his chosen people. And so in a sense, it's a a bit of a new concept for Nicodemus to hear God loves the world. So it's not familiar in Jewish thought. The Jewish people were the people of God, showing the affection of God. For God to expand that love was a big picture for Nicodemus to begin to grasp. And so here's what I want us to do. We've got who's involved, an infinitely holy God and a sinfully rebellious people. But in order to understand the depth of God's love in John 3.16, what I want us to do is take a step back in time, so to speak, from here. We've got to realize that Jesus doesn't say this in a vacuum. This doesn't just all of a sudden appear in history. There's a whole story that's led up to this point about God and his people. And so what I want us to do for the bulk of our time together this morning is journey back into the Old Testament, and I want to show you what I believe to be one of the most, if not the most, incredible pictures of the love of God in the Old Testament that will radically affect the way we understand John 3.16 in the New Testament. We'll return to David's message in just a minute, but I want to take a moment to thank those who have partnered with Radical this past year. Because of your generosity, we've been able to offer free, gospel-centered resources in 12 different languages to countless numbers of people around the world. Many of you are already partnering financially with Radical, and for that we are eternally grateful. But I'd like to invite others to join us as we seek to glorify God by serving the church in the mission of reaching the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can make a one-time donation or become a regular monthly contributor by going to Radical.net slash donate. And we would be honored and blessed by your generosity. Now here's David with the rest of today's message. So, turn with me back to the left, and I want you to find the book of Hosea. It'll be a little hard to find. It's one of the minor prophets, which means it's one of the smaller books. If you need to use your table of contents, feel free to do that. But go with me to Hosea chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a little background on this guy named Hosea. He was a prophet in the 8th century. And basically for him to be a prophet means that he spoke for God. A prophet would take God's word and speak it to his people. In the 8th century, he was prophesying in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's just a little background here. And the northern kingdom of Israel was extremely evil. They were engrossed, you see it all over the book of Hosea, engrossed in all kinds of sinfulness, which we'll get into in just a second. And so Hosea's job was to bring God's message to his people at that time. 
These guys who were prophets in the Old Testament, though, had a pretty tough job. It wasn't always easy because God didn't always have good news for his people. And even worse, sometimes these prophets would have to preach action sermons, so to speak. They wouldn't just come and say, if you have your Bible and hope you do, and, and preach this, this sermon. Instead, well, they didn't have a Bible then, so they definitely wouldn't have said that. But they didn't just have to get up and preach. A lot of the times, God would tell them to live out what they're preaching in unusual ways. Isaiah, many, many people don't know this, Isaiah, who wrote this incredible picture of prophecy that we have in the Old Testament, for three years had to walk around stripped and barefoot. God said, Isaiah, you're going to walk around basically stripped of your clothes and barefoot for three years in order to show what I'm going to do in this particular way among my people. That's not an easy job to walk around barefoot in your underwear for three years as a prophet. You don't necessarily want to sign up for that job. And then you look at, at Ezekiel. At Ezekiel, he had to do all kinds of things, some very painful things that he experienced in his life. Jeremiah carried a yoke around him. And, and Hosea had a dramatically unique assignment. And God called Hosea to do something very, very unusual. He told him to marry a woman named Gomer. Now, there were two problems with that. One, her name was Gomer. God, or David, I, I, I want you to marry Heather. Ah, yes, yes. David, I want you to marry Gomer. Hmm, hmm. Did I hear you right? Yes, Gomer. I want you to marry Gomer. So that was problem number one. Problem number two, and much more important, Gomer was a prostitute. Now, we don't know all the details about Gomer, as far as before she married Hosea, how involved in prostitution she was before she married Hosea. But we do know that as Hosea's wife, she was involved in much prostitution. Listen to Hosea chapter 1. Listen to verse 2 and 3. This is when God said this to Hosea. Look at Hosea 1, 2 and 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So what we've got to realize is when we come to the book of Hosea, this is a story that's really being told on two different levels. And throughout this book, you have to see this story on both levels. On one level, you've got Hosea, a real man marrying Gomer, a real woman who is cheating on him, running around on him, and having children in adultery. So you've got the pain and hurt that's involved in that whole picture. And then you've got a whole other level, where this is a picture of God and his people. And the people of Israel are the bride, or Gomer, in this whole story. And the Israelites are those individual children. And you'll see children mentioned throughout the book of Hosea to refer to the Israelites as individuals. And what God has done in the book of Hosea is he has given us a picture of his love and at the same time the pain involved in his relationship with his people by likening it to the pain involved when a woman, a wife, leaves her husband and goes running around on him in complete and total adultery and prostitution. 
And so we've got to see this story on those two levels. And based on that, you already know, before you even get into the book of Hosea, knowing that premise, this is a heavy book. The emotions in Hosea are real, and they are thick. And the passage we're about to read, I'll just be honest with you, during my time studying this text this week, I've just been in tears Letting this text soak in. And so I want you to know it's heavy. It's heavy. But I want you to know it's worth it to see how heavy it is. And you'll see what I mean by that. Let's start in Hosea chapter 2, verse 2. This is God speaking to his people. Hosea speaking to Gomer. Okay? You got the two lines. Listen to what it says. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her. For she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert and turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after lovers. Listen to this. This is the climax. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. Now here's the deal. These are words that we don't usually picture coming out of the mouth of God. And if we're really honest, they don't always square with our view of God. And so I want us to unpack these verses and I want us to see a view of God that the Bible gives us. And I want us to consider what it means for our lives in this room this morning. You see, there's two main people involved in this story much like we saw in John 3.16. Number one, this is a story of an unfaithful people. A story of an unfaithful people. You see it from the very beginning. Verse 5, their mother has been unfaithful. And what you've got is this picture of a people who had turned from God. You've got to go back even to the beginning of the Old Testament. Exodus 6, 6 through 8, Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 9. What you've got is a picture of God entering into a covenant relationship with his people, which is basically like a marriage. And God entered into a marriage, so to speak, with the people of Israel. And he promised to love them. 
And they promised to love him. And he promised to pour out his blessings on them. And they promised to worship him. This was this marriage relationship they entered into. And that's the background that leads up to this. And so what you've got is this marriage relationship that has been broken. You hear from the very beginning, rebuke your mother, rebuke her. It's emphasized, says two times. And the word literally means to bring a legal accusation against her. Accuse her. And it kind of startles you from the very beginning that God is saying this about his people. And he says, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Now, we find out later in this book that that doesn't mean that there has been an official divorce that has happened, so to speak, between Hosea and Gomer or between God and his people. But we definitely see from the very beginning of this book that there is obviously a practical severing of that relationship to the point where it is not even noticeable that she would be called his wife, that they would be called God's people. And what happens is the way Hosea writes, you don't, you don't see, okay, number one, this is the problem, and number two, number three. Instead, these themes kind of weave in and out with each other. And I want you to see three themes, the four themes that kind of sum up Israel's unfaithfulness, Gomer's unfaithfulness. And I want you to see those unfold. We've got to grasp the unfaithfulness of God's people in Hosea too. So, first of all, think of themes that display her unfaithfulness. Number one, she was adulterous. She was adulterous. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face. And obviously, we don't have to press the imagery too far in this passage to know that God is really giving a pretty graphic depiction of how his people have run around with the things of this world on him, have turned from him and indulged in the things of this world for pleasure instead of seeking that pleasure for him. And he compares it, he compares it to the pain of a wife running around on her husband with other men and enjoying other men and not even thinking about her husband. You can only imagine the pain that's being expressed there in the words of Hosea. And it's at this point we see from the very beginning, with God comparing sin to spiritual adultery, we need to realize, based on this text, that sin is a personal affront to God, just like a wife committing adultery against her husband, our sin against God is not some neutral thing we do. It is a personal affront from each of us toward God. We need to realize, ladies and gentlemen, there are no spiritual singles in this room. Not one person in this room this morning is a spiritual single. We are all either faithfully married to God or spiritually adulterous toward God. Let that soak in. This undercuts the myth of spiritual neutrality that is so prevalent in our culture. This idea that both Christians and non-Christians have that we are nice, moral people, good people, and we can remain religiously neutral, it is not possible. God has created each of us for himself. And he is worthy of each one of our worship. So to not give him that worship is to choose 
not to give him that worship. Every single person within the sound of my voice, every student in this room, every man, every woman, every child is either faithfully married to God or a spiritual prostitute toward their creator. She was adulterous. It's the picture that God is giving us of sin. Not just adulterous. Second, she was idolatrous. This book is really all about idolatry. This is the core of the issue. When it talks about how she went after other lovers, the picture is that God's people had gone and worshipped all kinds of different false gods. You see, and you see mentioned in here a couple of times Baal. And Baal is, is used throughout the Old Testament. Baal was a Canaanite rain god. Not just the god of the rain, though. He was the god of fertility. He was the god of prosperity and blessing. And so you would pray to Baal and it would rain was the plan. And you would pray to Baal and you would have your crops go well. You would pray to Baal and you would have prosperity in your family. And that, that was a god, foreign god, that was worshipped around all the pagan nations surrounding Israel. And so what happened is, Israel would go and make trade agreements with these pagan nations around them, and they would get, and you see it mentioned all throughout here, water and oil and linen and wool and all these things, and they would hear these other nations talk about how they have these things because of the gods that they worship. And so what would happen is, the people of Israel would get those things and begin to worship that God as well, and say, we... We praise this God and we bow down to this idol because this is how we get silver and gold and wool and linen and oil and all of these things. That was the picture of God's people. And so what God told Hosea to do, get the picture here on this level. Imagine God going to Hosea and saying something like this. Hosea, you know that your wife, Gomer, is living in a a very dirty part of the city and she is cheating on you and she doesn't think about you but you realize that she is not having her needs met that she is not doing well and Hosea said yes I know that and so imagine God saying to Hosea Hosea I want you to go to the store and I want you to get food, drink and provision for your wife and I want you to take it to her and make sure that her needs are met. Imagine the pain involved in Hosea going and getting those provisions and going to the place where Gomer was and not looking up Gomer, but looking up Gomer's lover and going to him, knocking on the door, and he opens it. And Gomer says, Are you living with, or Hosea says, Are you living with Gomer, son of Dublaim? And he says, yes, what's it to you? Hosea says, that's, that's my wife. And I want to make sure she's taken care of. Imagine that man all of a sudden kind of stepping back, not knowing what's about to happen. And Hosea says, here's these provisions. Would you just make sure that they get to her? Imagine that man thinking, what a fool taking the provisions, closing the door in Hosea's face. And then later on, going to Gomer and saying, Gomer, here are some gifts that I've gotten for you to provide for you. 
And all of a sudden, Gomer comes to that man and wraps her arms around him and says, thank you for providing for me. And she gives him his love, the love that only Hosea served. This is the picture. That'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. For other free resources from David Platt, including those in other languages, visit Radical.net. And if you'd like more information on the International Mission Board, visit imb.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time for more teaching from David, right here on the Radical Together podcast.